morning we bring an offering of our praise to you. Lord, we pray that it is pleasing to you because it comes from clean hands and pure hearts. Hands and hearts, Lord, that you have purified. Lord, we are, we are amazed by you. We are amazed as we think and ponder on the fact that you stepped out of heaven and were born of a virgin, born a baby, born in a manger, the humblest ways to come, yet you are our king. Lord, we praise you today. We thank you for, for designing your, your church, to gather your church together. Lord, we thank you for this place where we can come together and sing your praises, to fellowship with one another, and Lord, now to study your word. And Lord, we ask that as we do, you would join us here, that you would, that you would open our hearts to receive from you today. Lord, that we truly can have what you desire us to have. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Good morning. Merry Christmas. Take out your Bibles, if you would, this morning and open them up to 2 Peter. We begin today a study of the second letter that Peter wrote to the early church, 2 Peter. While you're doing that, just share with you an observation that I've come across here the last few weeks. So I've been out and interacting with the world around, as I'm sure you all have, going shopping and even just in your day-to-day -day interactions with people. I have come to the observation that there is absolutely no joy in happy holidays. None. <laughs> You know, I, I, it, it kind of came to the capper for me yesterday. I'm taking my oldest son, Jerry, to the airport. He was flying to El Paso, and so he and, it could be with his wife's family and everything there for, for Christmas. She had gone the week before with our grandson, and he flew out to be with them. And on the way, stopped and got a, a cup of coffee. And the gal behind the counter I, you know, said to me, and she, as she hands me my coffee, happy holidays, you know. <laughs> And I just looked at her and I said, God bless you, Merry Christmas. And it was like she just lit up. It was like this huge weight was lifted off of her. And she was like, oh, you too, you know? It was, wow. You know, I can, we can experience joy when we, when we get it off of what the world tells us and tries to give us. You know, there can't, there, there's no joy. There's no joy if we take Jesus out of Christmas. We take Christ out of Christmas, there's no joy. We take Christ out of Christmas, this is what we get. I got a picture for you. That's, that's a Christmas card. That's my, actually, that's my grandson, actually. And if we get a, there's a closer up picture. If we got that, we can see probably why he's reacting the way. If we can, No? All right, anyway, well, Santa, I don't know if you can see Santa. He's not real joyous either. <laughs> and he's like, when is my shift over? <laughs> Guys, we can't have joy in Christmas without Christ. We can't, we can't enjoy this season without him. We can, we can, at best, we can get what the world gets, and that's temporary merriment. And it's over, and it's over. And bottom line is, joy to the world, the Lord has come. That is, that is what we celebrate, and that is where our joy comes from. And you might be thinking, okay, now you've told us to open to 2 Peter. What kind of Christmas message is 2 Peter? <laughs> well, 
It's a, it's, it's a huge Christmas blessing because we're going to see as we study just the first few verses of this letter the joy that is ours in Christ, the joy that he desires to have in us in a relationship with him. It can't be taken away. It's not temporary. It's not momentary. It's eternal. And Peter begins this letter as most of the authors of the epistles do, just with a brief introduction, Simon Peter, a bondservant, an apostle of Jesus Christ, again, real quickly drawing your attention to the humility of Peter. Not boasting, not standing on anything he's done, as a matter of fact, falling completely on the fact that he is a bondservant. That word again, as we've talked about every time we come across, the word is doulos. It's used 124 times in the New Testament, and it means slave. He's referring to himself as this, the apostles all refer to themselves as this, and they refer to us as Christians the same way, slaves of our King Jesus. And again, understanding what that relationship then means as slaves of our King Jesus, bond servants, that means absolute surrender, total devotion and dependence on him, but done willingly from a heart that loves him because of what he has done for us. And every time I come across this, and I would ask that we all do this as we study God's word and we come across this term, because it's there 124 times, pause, and say, does that describe me? Does that describe my heart and my attitude towards my king? Am I fully devoted to him? Am I completely surrendered to him? Peter was. And he writes this letter to the early church. He writes this letter because it is kept for us in God's word for us. This letter is to us. And he says, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Notice, first of all, he says, those who have received. Have received, past tense. This is not something that is yet future for us as believers. He says, we have this. What do we have? He says, a faith of the same kind as ours. Well, before we get to the same kind piece, notice who ours is. He's speaking of himself and the other apostles. Those who saw Jesus, those who lived with Jesus, those who saw him die, those who saw him rise, those who were with him after the resurrection, those who saw him go to heaven. And he says, that faith that we have, you also have. Wow. I come to Again, pieces like this in Scripture and say, seeing this, and, and also like James says, that, that Elijah was a man of a character and nature like ours. And I think, man, really? Really? But yes, that's what the Word of God says. And we need to understand then what he's speaking of. When he says faith, he's not just talking about general faith, faith in faith. Understand, faith is no greater than the object in which we have faith in. See a couple jerseys around here. Let me ask a question. How many of you have faith that the Cardinals are going to win today? Ah, there's a few of you. Hey, that's great. Now, honestly, honestly, I would like nothing more than to see the Cardinals win today, but I don't share your faith. I, I honestly don't believe they're going to go into Seattle and win today. I don't. I don't share that faith. Because the faith, then, is placed in a football team, is placed in human beings, that's not the faith that we're talking about here. We're talking about faith in God himself, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is why he can say with us that we share this same faith, understanding that it's nothing that we do, nothing that we build upon. Peter's not saying, because you've arisen to the same level as I have. No, he's saying, because we're all on the same level to begin with. 
Because faith comes to us all the same way. It's the saving faith that he's referring to. We all come the same way. We are all convicted of our sin. We are all broken over our sin. We all repent of our sin, turning from our sin, turning to Jesus, receiving the free gift of salvation through faith. As a matter of fact, Paul tells us that the faith itself is a gift. He says, by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves, but a gift from God. Faith is not of ourselves. It is a gift of God. That, again, is why it's the same kind. And the word literally means of the same value, of the same, it's equally honored. It was used to describe foreigners who were granted citizenship in a new country. They now enjoy all the equal benefits as though they were actually born in that country, yet they were born somewhere else. Now you're citizens. Now you share equally in the precious honor of being a citizen. We all come to God the same way. Sinners, broken, we're all reconciled the same way by faith in Jesus Christ. Turn with me real quickly to Romans chapter 3. Paul addresses this same thing. Romans chapter 3. Romans 3, beginning in verse 21. Paul writes, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. There is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Paul's saying the same thing Peter is saying. We have the same faith because we are all sinners. We are all separated from God's, God's love by this sin. We have made this choice. But in Christ Jesus, we can be reconciled to him, receiving the free gift of faith. Again, faith is no greater than its object. And Peter clearly points out to us in verse 1 the object of our faith. And this is extremely important before we move on because there are many that say, yeah, I believe in Jesus. I believe, I believe, in, I believe in this guy, Jesus. I, I, I've seen it. I, I get that. I believe in that. We need to understand what Peter is saying. This faith that separates our faith from every other faith is the fact that we believe that not only is Jesus our Savior, that he is God. Look at what it says. By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus is none other than God himself stepped out of heaven, becoming one of us. He's not only the Son of God, he is God the Son. Isaiah 45, 21 says, There is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. This, Jesus can't be anything but God or the, everything that we've placed our faith in is worthless. It's not optional. It's not trivial. It's crucial. 
And we celebrate this in, at, at Christmas time now that God himself humbled himself to be born a baby. Wow. Well, he says of this same faith, he goes in verse two now, he starts telling us the privileges that we have because of this faith that we share. He says, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Grace, grace, we talk of it often, unmerited favor, undeserved blessing. Those things that God just pours out upon us because he's God, not because we're us. <laughs> he blesses us undeservedly. We don't earn it, we can't earn it. He, he gives us things that we don't deserve and he gives us things that we could never obtain on our own outside of him. Grace and peace. Now that word peace is originally associated with the ending of a war and how fitting. Because before we came to this faith, we were at war with God. The Bible tells us that in our sin, in our fallen state, we were enemies of God. We were at enmity with him. But because of Jesus and his work and us, the faith, this gift that we have, we've been reconciled with him. We have now peace instead of animosity with God. Because of that peace now that we have with God, we can now have peace with one another. We can have real peace in our circumstances. We can have peace with ourselves. Now, the world around us spends billions of dollars and going to see doctors and all sorts of stuff to try to find a peace within themselves that they can't possibly find outside of Jesus. But we have that as a gift. And it tells us, grace and peace be multiplied to you. I love God's math. He doesn't say add it a teaspoon at a time. It says be multiplied to you. Now, I asked a question, and as I'm pondering this, thinking this earlier in the week, grace, blessings beyond our imagination that we don't deserve, and peace with God, myself, with others, with my circumstances, who wouldn't want that? Who wouldn't want that? And who wouldn't want it in mass quantities? So I started thinking about this, and I thought I better make sure it's not just me thinking this. So I sat down with, with four, four people earlier this week, and I asked them the question, and Watch the video, see, if, see the answers I got. Let's pretend you have 10 candies. Would you guys rather add 10 candies to your candy or would you rather multiply by 10 your candies? What would you rather do? I ate mine. You ate it already? <laughs> right on. What about you? Multiply. Multiply, why, how come? Because I want a bazillion more. Bazillion more, awesome. <laughs> That's great math, I love that. How about you? That makes perfect sense. I get it. It's not complicated. It's not. Who wouldn't want a bazillion blessings? Oh, man. God is good. God is good. Infinite grace multiplied by infinite peace. I mean, just blows our minds. Ephesians 3 tells us that God wants to bless us beyond more than we could ever possibly imagine or think. I mean, again, we can now say, all right, I, I got a bazillion in my mind. I can wrap my mind around that number. God says, 
you're still way too low. I got way more than that for you. So if this is what's promised to us, grace and peace be multiplied to you, we want to find out how, right? Well, he tells us, in the knowledge of God. In the knowledge of God. Now, we need to understand, again, in, in the Greek language, what he's saying here, knowledge. There's a word in the Greek language for knowledge, it's gnosis. And that means knowledge, just like we would think of, knowledge, wisdom. But the term that's used here is epignosis. That means a step above that. That means a deeper, richer, fuller knowledge that comes by experience, experiential knowledge. Now, what, is, what does he mean by that? How do, how do we put that into illustration? Well, if you wanted to take up a, a hobby, let's say you wanted to learn how to ski or you wanted to learn how to play golf, you could read books, you could watch instruction, you could watch other people do it, you could go on YouTube and watch video after video after video and see all of that and get a whole bunch of knowledge, yet would do you no good. Because until you actually put skis on, or you actually get a set of clubs and you go out and start hitting golf balls, you can't experience golf. You can't experience skiing. And therefore, when you do, you have a greater, deeper, richer knowledge than you could possibly get from just reading books or watching videos. The same is true with the Word of God. The same is true with this walk that we are a part of in, in this relationship with the Lord. And that is what Peter is telling us. Remember, we talked about this over the past few weeks in 1 Peter. We're told to rejoice in our trials. We are, we are told that we are to resist the enemy, right? We're told over and over that we are to forgive one another. Now, you could come to church every weekend for the next 10 years and hear sermon after sermon after sermon about this. You could read it in your Bible. You could do all those things. But until you actually rejoice in a trial, until you actually resist the enemy and temptation, until you actually start forgiving people, you can't experience it. You can't have the knowledge that we are called to have. And what Peter is telling us here is when we do this, that is where the blessings come. That is where the grace and peace are multiplied to us as we not only understand God's word here, but we apply it and experience it in our lives. Paul wrote to Timothy saying that it's God's desire that all men are saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And again, he used that term epignosis of the truth. Not just an understanding, an intellectual assent of it, but an experiential knowledge of the truth of his word. Know it, experience it, embrace it, live it. Solomon wrote, Proverbs chapter 2, starting in verse 1, he said, My son, if you will receive my words and treasure my commandments within you, Make your ear attentive to wisdom. Incline your heart to understanding. For if you cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for her as hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. In the Greek Septuagint translation of the Old Testament, that knowledge there is the epignosis. He says later in verse 10, For wisdom will enter your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. When you experience God's wisdom and his knowledge, when we do this, it's pleasant to us. But I find it a shame that Solomon knows himself, he knows you, and he knows me so well that he uses as an illustration to describe how we should seek after God, how we would seek after riches, how we would seek after wealth. If you knew 
that there was $10 million worth of gold buried in your backyard, would you rest before you found it? <laughs> would you rent every piece of excavating equipment you could get your hands on until you found it? Of course not. <laughs> $10 million, you know it's buried right in your backyard. Guys, riches far more valuable than that are in your hands right now. And do we give the same effort? That's what Solomon is saying. Do we give that same effort? Digging, experiencing what is in here to get the blessings. Well, I'm going to come back to knowledge again in a moment and, and this, how this works. But as if multiplied grace and peace weren't enough. Look at the continued blessings, the continued privileges that are ours because of this faith. Verse 3, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Again, what, so much in here to understand what he's saying. He says, because of this faith that we have, we have been granted, again, past tense. This isn't stuff that we accumulate as we go along. We have been granted everything pertaining to life and godliness. Everything. Everything is within us pertaining to life and godliness. When you were born again, when you were born again Christian, you were born again complete. Just as a baby is born complete with everything, all fingers, all toes, all internal organs, nothing grows and adds on later, it just grows as we, as we feed our babies and nourish them. They grow, and the same is true with us. But what Peter is saying is everything that we need is already resident within us. It just needs to be nurtured and grow. Colossians 2.10 says, In him we have been made complete, not partial, not started, we've been made complete in Christ. So how, again, do we utilize this? It says, seeing that his divine power has granted this. Now, this is another aspect of this, understanding this divine power. How does it work? Well, Paul tells us in Ephesians 3, 20 and 21, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. That divine power is actively working within us as we embrace the promises, as we experience God's word. Not just read it, again, not just understand it, but we experience it. His divine power works within us, taking everything that is in there for, a life, of, of, a, a, for life and godliness and growing that. Understanding, again, Peter, what he's saying here, Everything pertaining to life. Just like the word love, in Greek, there are many different words that we translate love. Same thing with life. The first word is suke. That means the breath of life. The, the actual to be alive, physically being alive. There's also another word, bios, that means the course or the sum of life, as you look over the totality of life. But he didn't use either one of those words. He used the word zoe. And that means absolute fullness of life. It describes the kind of life, a full life. Jesus used the same word, I came that they may have life, zoe, and have it abundantly. And I love how Jesus, again, used multiplication in the, in the whole process. He says, I came so that you could have absolute fullness of life and have it abundantly. That's his desire for you. 
That is God's desire for you. The world tells you that, oh, you become a Christian, it's just a bunch of do's and don'ts, and you're not going to have any fun, and da 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 It's not what Jesus said. And I, I, I know it from experiencing it myself. That's not the truth. When we follow his plan, we have an abundant life. Well, not only life, he says everything pertaining to godliness. And this is so important, guys. Because we can't have the fullness of life without godliness. We can't have everything God desires us to have without godliness. We can't have Zoe without godliness, holiness. You know, regardless of what revisionist historians will tell you, our country was founded on that principle. That we, if we desire God's blessing for our country, we will be God-fearing people. That we will, that we will follow his statutes. First textbook in schools, you're holding it right now. He tells us in our text today that we have this, everything pertaining to life and godliness, again, through the true knowledge of him. The true knowledge of him. This is so important Again, because right now we live in a time where there is a whole lot of false knowledge out there. Stuff that is labeled knowledge, but it's not. It's deception. It's misrepresentation. False promises. False advertising. I, I was doing a look up the other day on, on sp- gifts, Christmas gifts for, for sports fans, and I came across uh, something for now. Na- any NASCAR fans? In here, NASCAR fans, all right, few, all right. Did you know that according to this, this website, this gift, you could be a NASCAR driver for a day? No, you can't. Their advertising says you can be, though. Give us your money, give us the, no, no, however much it is, and we'll make you NASCAR driver for a day. No, what they'll do is they'll pad you all up and stick you in a car that they've painted to look like a NASCAR car, and then you get to drive around in a big circle at about one-fifth the speed that they do with two or three other cars well-spaced apart, and then you get out, and they give you a trophy, and you take a picture. You're not a NASCAR driver. <laughs> but they tell you it is, and it's misrepresentation. It's false advertising. Well, I say all of that to say, because we, we can look at that, we can laugh, we get that, but I read an extremely startling, scary statistic this week. Barna the research company, again, did some polling of Christians and only 38% of Christians believe that the Bible is totally accurate in all of the principles it teaches. Let me repeat that. Only 38% of professing Christians believe that everything in here is true, that all of the principles in here are true. That's scary. Why is that so scary? Because I can tell you pretty much 100% of those who don't call themselves Christians don't believe hardly a word in this. And we see it everywhere around us. We see it magnified in the world around us. Jumping off the pages lately. We live in a culture and a society today that says a teenager, a teenage girl dancing around half naked on stage singing a song it's okay because it's, she has freedom of speech. 
She has freedom of expression, so that's okay. But a man who is a Bible-believing, God-fearing man who believes that, 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 uh, that marriage should be between one man and one woman because God said so is now asked to be removed from his television show. It's scary. It's scary. Listen, listen, to what, listen to what God says about this. In Isaiah chapter 5, beginning in verse 20, it says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight, Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink who justify the wicked for a bribe. Verse 23 says this, and take away the rights of the one who are in the right. Woe to that person, woe to that country. And we're there now, guys. We're there. And I say that now not to enlighten you on anything that you probably didn't already know, but here's, what, here's the point I want to make. That study where only 38% of professing Christians said that they believe the Bible is totally accurate in all of its principles went on to say they place a greater emphasis on the believer's personal relationship with Christ. I'm here to tell you that's impossible. You cannot have a vibrant personal relationship with Christ if you don't believe that his precepts are true. You can't. It's impossible. Yet so many Christians today say, you know what, I, I believe the grace part. And I'm good with the love part. Hey, I'm all for that. But you know, when it starts getting into these other areas, when it's calling out sin and, and ways that I'm supposed to live and I'm supposed to actually confront sin, I, you know what, that, that's, that's not the God I want to worship. When we do that, guys, we forfeit so much. We can't, again, we cannot have a true knowledge that we are called to have here in our verses, a true knowledge. We cannot have that apart from understanding and embracing God's word, the totality of it. Je Jesus said in John 14, 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. That's powerful. Do you want Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, to disclose himself personally to you? He promises he will, but there's a condition. He says, you have to know what I say and you have to do it. You have to be obedient. You have to follow me. And when you do, I will disclose myself to you. Two parts, knowing it and doing it. It's not enough to just know it. Again, it's not enough to just come here on Sundays. It's not enough to just read your devotions in the morning if you don't go out and live it. Again, to go back, football game this afternoon. Larry Fitzgerald, been studying film all week. He's got the game, game plan down perfectly. He knows exactly what he is supposed to do. But let's just say, first quarter of the game today, he runs the route perfectly, the pass is thrown perfectly, he catches it, and he says, you know what, if I run that way, it's going to be a whole lot easier than if I run that way. <laughs> if I run that way, nobody's going to hit me. If I run that way, nobody's going to hurt me. So I'm going to take off, and I'm going to start running that way. And you know what? He's right. Nobody hits him. 
He doesn't get hurt. And you know what? People are cheering. There's people cheering. Seahawks fans, but they're cheering. The enemy sidelines, they're cheering. Go, Larry, go, right? But the problem is, it ends in victory for the other team. It ends in loss. It ends, do it too often, you end up on the bench. Can't be used anymore. Guys, God has a perfect game plan. And we have to understand that there, there is an enemy out there that doesn't like it, that is doing everything it can to thwart the game plan. But if we understand it, and if the world understood it, See, here's the deal. Here's the game plan. Here's the reason for it is God looked down at this sin-filled world and he's, he, wasn't, he wasn't happy to leave it the way it was. It wasn't his desire and he wasn't content to leave the world hopelessly drowning in sin. So, because God so loved the world, he gave his only son. He gave his only son to be humbly born in a manger. Not, not under some huge pomp and circumstance, but humbly born in a manger so that he would grow up from a baby into youth and into adolescence, into adulthood, so that he could relate to you and me. And he did it perfectly so that he could suffer and die for you and me to pay the price for our sin. And he didn't do that to come and condemn the world. As a matter of fact, he did it to come and save the world from the corruption of sin. That's the game plan. And when we hear it in its simplicity and in its truth, why would anybody want anything different? Why would we want anything different? Why would we exchange the truth for a lie? Well, I think largely the world just doesn't know it. The world doesn't understand it. And it's our responsibility and our job to share it with them, to tell them the, the glorious promises that are ours in this relationship. But we can't do it if we're running the same way they are. We can't do it if we go over to their sideline. We have to be in the fight. Well, Peter continues. I mean, again, I keep, as we keep reading through this, and I encourage you, please do this this week. Read through it again. Read through these, these few verses we're covering today because there's so much in here. I mean, again, you think there's more? Yeah, there's more. Verse four, for by these... He has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. By these, by what? By faith, by grace, by peace, by the power in us, by living, a li living life and godliness out that has been given to us. Everything that we have in the true knowledge of him. By these, we get precious and magnificent promises. Precious and magnificent promises. Precious, of great value magnificent. You want a word study? This is really cool. A little Greek word study for you. The word that's translated magnificent is built, translated magnificent is built off of the word that means huge, that means big already, but it's the superlative of big. So it's like really, really big. It takes something that's massive and it puts a superlative in front of it to make it enormously massive. That is what we're promised. Precious and magnificent promises. Aren't you glad it's not precious or magnificent promises? <laughs> I mean, precious. Here, here's some gold, precious gold, but get a little flake. Or magnificent. Here's this giant ball of yarn. <laughs> Huge, not worth anything. 
and is better. Precious and magnificent promises. And what makes them so precious and magnificent is not only the promises themselves, but the promisor, because he cannot lie. The world promises everything but can't deliver anything. God promises and delivers. So how do we know where the promises are, what they are? Guys, again, right here in your hands, this is full of them, full of them. I challenge you to read more than two or three chapters this week and not stumble across blessings, promises. Matter of fact, John Bunyan spent most of his life in prison, or a large part of it anyway, said this, the pathway of life is strewn so thickly with the promises of God that it is impossible to take one step without treading upon one of them. They're all over. They're precious. They're magnificent. Do you believe it? Do you expect God to honor his promises? Do you live that way? See, we need, to, we need to know his promises. We need to be in his word. We need to know what they are. Then we need to believe. We need to believe that his promises are true, but then we need to walk in faith, believing that his promises are true, believing and expecting him to answer and to work as he said he would. If we leave any part of that process out, we miss out on the blessings. If we don't know them, if we don't believe them, if we don't walk and experience them, we leave it on the table. And he tells us even continued benefits in verse four as it finishes. It says, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Partakers of the divine nature. Now, this is not as some cults say that we become God someday. That's not what it means at all. Not even close. What it says is that when we embrace these promises, we have the very divine nature. God's very nature becomes part of our nature. We become more loving. We become more, more forgiving. We become more merciful and gracious. We become more holy. And it says, having escaped the corruption that is in the world. Again, past tense word, past completed action that has ongoing results. Have escaped, that means a severing. And it says, escaped the corruption. The corruption that the world embraces, we escape. And that word corruption literally means the stinking, filthy, rotting carcass of a dead animal. <laughs> and again, we, we say, yes, I can stand here, as, as a, Ephesians chapter 2 tells us, yes, I once was like that, that's where I used to be, but I'm not anymore. And we need to stay in this. And again, my encouragement today is, guys, we can't compromise that. We can't compromise and, and go back to the, the corruption just a little bit. We can't start going the way of the world just a little bit because if we don't stand for the truth, no one will. And again, why wouldn't we? Why wouldn't we with all of the blessings that are ours? It says that we've escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. The lusts of the world, they're all around us. The lusts of the flesh, the pride of life, the enemy who continually comes after us offering empty promises, self-gratification, thoughts, words, deeds. Guys, we need to identify this, understand it, 
take every thought captive, surrender it to Christ, and replace them with the truth that we have here, the truth that we've studied today, his precious and magnificent promises, not believing the lies that the world is offering, embracing the promises of the Lord, remembering that he is faithful, and he who began the good work in us will see it through to completion. Again, I go back to the picture of my grandson. That's the best that we can hope for, is to sit on some angry Santa's lap screaming our lungs out. That's joy. Or we can have true joy. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Don't let anyone take your joy away. Don't let anyone take your blessings away that are yours because of your faith, your relationship with Christ. Share it. Share it. We have a couple more days. Obviously, we are to do this every day of every year, all the time. But we have a couple more unique days where we can share joy with those people that have over and over said, happy holidays, happy holidays. We can share true joy with them. And if you are here this morning, before we close, if you're here today and you realize that you've never experienced that joy, you've never experienced the fullness of life that we're talking about here, you understand and realize that you are separated from your God, your creator, because of sin in your life, and you have never surrendered your life to Jesus, trusting in him and him alone, his completed work on the cross for you, you can have that joy. You can have it today. There's no magic formula involved. It's simply responding to the Holy Spirit right now, prompting your heart, saying, he's talking to me. And you simply respond in your heart. You, you confess that you are a sinner. We all are. You're not alone. Everyone in this room is a sinner. We've all fallen short of God's glory. The only difference between us and you is we have confessed that, we have repented of that, and we have received Jesus as our Lord. You can do that right now, right here today. Do not leave today without coming forward. We'll have pastors and elders up front here. We'd love to talk with you, pray with you, and introduce you to that relationship. And maybe you're here today too, and you are born again, you know that, but you have been running the way of the world. You've lost that joy. You too, right now. It's a matter of just turning away from the world, turning and start running the right direction. Jesus is right there. He's, he's waiting to welcome you back. He's waiting to pour out life abundantly to you. The giver of life is ready to give you life. What an amazing God we serve. Father, we praise you for who you are. Jesus, we are amazed by you. Again, that you would love us so much that you would step out of glory and clothe yourself in flesh, becoming a baby, born in a manger, in the middle of nowhere. Lord, it's, it's far too much for us to even grasp. But we embrace it in faith. Lord, we thank you for coming. We thank you for living. We thank you for dying in our place. And we praise you that you have risen again, that you have gone ahead of us to prepare a place for us in eternity. Lord, our prayer is that we would live for you that we would embrace the true knowledge of you, Lord, that we would experience 
you by being obedient to you. Lord, give us a heart for the lost and the dying around us. Lord, our, our desire isn't to condemn them, but to reveal your truth to them. Lord, we pray for those who boldly share your truth. We pray for your protection for them. Lord, we pray that over the next few days, as the world celebrates happy holidays, that they would see the true meaning of this and experience true joy. In your name we pray, amen.